Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. On today's episode, we have a special guest story from Sarah Fox, who produces a podcast called Here in the Gorge. The story is about what happens when something goes terribly wrong in the outdoors. We often imagine that it's the hardcore outdoors people who end up getting hurt or killed in the wilderness. People who go to the extremes and take big risks. But a lot of backcountry accidents happen to regular people, like you and me, who are just out for a quick hike or camping trip. Sarah brings us the story of an accident that happened to a little boy in Oregon, and she introduces us to the fascinating group of people who showed up to try and help. They're a group called the Crag Rats, and they're the oldest mountain search and rescue team in the U.S. They are the people who get called when someone gets hurt in places that ambulances can't get to. We'll play you the story in a few minutes, but first I wanted to chat briefly with Sarah and give you a sneak peek into the podcast she hosts. As I mentioned, her show is called Here in the Gorge, and it's where a version of today's story first aired. So first of all, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So tell me a little bit about Here in the Gorge. So I live in this area called the, the, well, we call it the Gorge for short, but it's the Columbia River Gorge. So we're an hour east of Portland. And it's, it's sort of known as an outdoor playground. So a lot of people come here to explore the outdoors, you know, whitewater kayaking and skiing and mountain climbing. We've got Mount Hood right here. We've got the Columbia River right here. Um, and so a couple years ago, Travel Oregon teamed up with some of the local nonprofits and businesses and basically had a studio to say, how do we help people get out to, you know, this is considered a, a rural area. Um, how do we help them get out and explore those places in a more sustainable way and have a more authentic understanding instead of just you know, zipping through on the weekend and leaving and not really understanding a place. Mm. Um, and so in the process of that um, studio, the, the folks got together and said, well, okay, maybe we should do a podcast. And I was the lucky one that they came to. And honestly, in the beginning, I don't think any of us were quite sure what it was going to look like. Um, and what was going on at the time was there was a regular lecture series and they said, let's produce a podcast that looks at the cultural and historical and natural history of this place and base the topics off of these lectures. So take a lecture topic and then go deeper, basically. Um, And what we find is a lot of people come to the gorge and don't know a lot about, don't know as much about the cultural and natural history as they do about where they can go for a great hike or a great beer. And so we thought, okay, we'll do stories on, on the cultural and natural history. Do you find that people who are coming in from elsewhere, so, you know, people who are coming in from Portland, let's say, um, and, you know, going with the goal of recreating, are they also interested in hearing about the culture and the history and all these things? Yeah, or do so they far. really just want to go play? <laughs> no, I think they do. I think I think a lot of times what the problem is you don't know how to access it. And if you're coming out for a hike and you've got a day, you you maybe don't have time to also go to the museum. Or how do you dig into, you know, the Japanese history of this place without going, you know, where where do you go to find that? It's just has not been as easily accessible. 
Um, but the great thing for us is that particularly people coming from Portland, they have an hour long drive to get to Hood River or to get to White Salmon. You know, we're sort of a little collection of towns. And so what we found is great is that people who are coming out either driving or we've also teamed with some um, sort of tour bus groups, they are able to listen on the way out. And when they get here and let's say you're going, you know, we're, we're, we're an agricultural center for the country in a lot of ways. We grow a ton of pears. Let's say, you know, in the case of the Japanese history, you listen to the story almost home about the the unique Japanese history of this place, and then you go to the orchards, and all of a sudden you're not just buying our fruit and buying jams and visiting an orchard. You're thinking about what this place looked like before there were Chinese workers here and Japanese workers clearing the land and using dynamite to bomb out stumps. Um, and you're thinking about what happened when those Japanese were interned and everyone left and farms changed hands. And so I do think that there is an interest there. It's just that people don't always know how to access it. And the thing that I love about audio stories and podcasts is it's this incredibly flexible medium that you can take with you and listen to whenever you want. And so it's been great. So tell me about you. What's your background? <laughs> oh, I would love to tell you it was like a, a straight line from A to B to C. <laughs> it's never like that, is it? <laughs> yeah. I think you somehow you think it's going to be that way. It's not. I grew up in um, a small Oregon town called Westland on a little five acre farm. And my parents met. They were both outward bound instructors. And they liked to joke that they had my brother and I. And they realized they were either going to have to give up backpacking or give up their children. And <laughs> they <laughs> they realized they probably couldn't give up their kids. And so what they decided to do was get llamas. And so I grew up. <laughs> I grew up back, as I'm a New York girl. You to say. Here you go. Okay. <laughs> so I grew up. Um, we had a five acre farm and we had usually anywhere between two to five llamas. And that's how we went backpacking. And we didn't, my parents were artists, so we didn't have we weren't going on fancy trips, but we were loading llamas into the llama trailer, driving to the Three Sisters, which is a mountain, some mountains in central Oregon. And we would go backpacking. And you could go deep when you've got a llama because you're not carrying it all yourself. And so, go, so wait, like as kids, are you are you riding the llamas no. or are they just carrying I mean, your stuff? They're carrying our stuff. You know, uh, <laughs> I was also a llama 4 hr so I can tell you that llamas are made to carry their weight distributed on the sides, not right down the middle of their back. So we wouldn't really ride them. So you actually couldn't ride them. Yeah, I mean, when we were little, we could get on for a while. But mostly they had huge packs that hung off the sides. Uh And then we would go, we had a spot we go to a lot. And we would go, you know, four or five miles on trail. And then for the rest of the week, we'd just be backcountry with the llamas. So I love this. Also, I kind of love your parents already. Oh, (laughs) well, let me tell you, you don't even know the half of it. They are... They are so that is where I started with that kind of thing as far as outdoors and and that adventure and then I've ended up I've lived I've lived all over I went to school in Chicago and school in Ohio and lived in San Francisco and spent some time abroad in Ghana West Africa and some time in India and ended up back in the Northwest which I kind of think you know it's in the water I knew I'd be back here um, and my my school background was in anthropology and international studies, which seems at first glance totally unrelated to producing stories. 
But I realize that's what now my background is in international studies. There also. you go. We probably <laughs> yeah. we probably like commiserate over our teachers and classes. And really, it's just my background. I joke that I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little about a lot of things. Yep. And I'm and I'm <laughs> curious about just about everything. So but that's what it takes to be a journalist. Totally. So wait, but then how did you get into how did you get into audio? You know, um, this podcast was it. Oh, I was really? Producing, yeah, I was working at. Um, off and on uh, as a freelance producer for documentary and also public broadcasting. I, I really cut my teeth at Oregon Public Broadcasting, um, where actually I did start in radio because I had moved back to Oregon and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know what I was doing and I just was really struggling. And they had something where you could go volunteer and read the news on this um, like audio service for people who I think were blind or hard of hearing. Mm. They don't have it anymore. And so for for weeks, months maybe, I would go on Saturday mornings from like 6 to 10 and read the news, you know, in a sound booth on a mic with this other random guy. And I friggin' loved it. And I was I was like, and I didn't get paid. It was all volunteer. Oh, you my know, gosh. Work, OK. I was working a job somewhere else. So then in the mornings, I'd go and volunteer. And then in the process, I ended up meeting a friend of a friend who worked in TV at OPB and I took him out to coffee and then he introduced me to someone else who was working on the TV side on an art show. And so I went and volunteered for him while I was doing this other job and I just, I was in heaven. I'd found my people. They were doing something I believed in and I hadn't found a lot of things that I could really believe in. And they were talking to and sharing the stories about everyday people. And to me, that was where my heart was and still is. And I volunteered for a long time and then convinced them or, I don't know, fooled them into thinking I knew a thing or two. And then someone from the outdoors show, uh, someone from Field Guide said, hey, you want to, you know, come work on this project? I can pay you. And I was like, hell, I don't even know what the project is. And I don't care what I'm doing, but you're offering to pay me to be in this place that I love. Hell yeah. (laughs) So I did that. He hired me on. And it started as just logging hours of tape for a documentary. Um, But then I ended up, you know, it was a year long project. And I ended up as the associate producer. And the the documentary went on to win a DuPont, Columbia DuPont Award and regional Emmys. And Mm, congrats. So that was it. Yeah. Well, I don't get much credit. I just I was the the wingman, the wingwoman, but so that that all sort of was how I went into the documentary, uh, film and TV side. And then when the podcast came up, people knew that I was a producer and will talk to strangers and like to ask questions. So <laughs> they were like, "Go for it." <laughs> Okay, it's time for a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll dive into Sarah's story about the Crag Rats. Support for Out There comes from Action Heat, makers of battery-heated clothing. That's right, clothing that has its own built-in heaters. You know how some cars have heated seats? This is kind of like that, but for apparel. So they actually sent me some samples to try out, and I was super curious to see what they looked like. So the socks, for example, look just like ski socks, except they have these little wires at the top that can plug into a rechargeable battery. And when you turn them on, you feel your toes getting warm almost immediately. In addition to socks, Action Heat makes heated jackets, gloves, hats, even long johns. They're all powered by rechargeable batteries, which last up to 12 hours on each charge. 
All of this is a way to stay toasty warm, even in the most frigid winter weather. Action Heat products start at just $39.99, and right now there's a special deal for out there listeners. You can save 20% off your entire order by going to actionheat.com slash out there. That's actionheat.com slash out there, or you can just use the coupon code out there at checkout. And of course, we have a link to all of this on our website. Support also comes from The Great Courses Plus, college-level classes that let you learn for the joy of it. If you're anything like me, there's a little piece of you that misses college. Not the cheap beer, or the dorm room beds, or the all-nighters in the computer lab. But you miss the big thoughts, the interesting reading, the fascinating discussions, and, of course, the amazing professors. The Great Courses Plus is a way to tap into that intellectual stimulation without having to actually be enrolled in a university. You can stream courses on virtually any topic, and you can watch them on your computer, tablet, phone, TV, or you can listen to the audio version with the Great Courses Plus app. Right now, there's a special deal for out there listeners. You can get your first month totally free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash out there. One of the courses they thought you all would particularly enjoy is a series that The Great Courses did in partnership with National Geographic Live. It's called Stories of Adventure and Survival, and it follows explorers into parts of the world that not very many people have seen. For example, you get to witness a 10-day climb to the summit of the untouched Bertha's Tower in Antarctica. You get to learn about the fortitude of the Sherpas of Everest, and a lot more. Again, to get your free trial of The Great Courses Plus, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash out there. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash out there. And I should say this offer is good for a limited time only, so don't put it off. And now let's get on to Sarah's story. Kim Hancock and his son Cole were on their first father-son camping trip. We got there and he couldn't have been more excited to put that backpack on and hike in. They'd prepared ahead of time and brought the right gear. We hiked up to the waterfall and we took pictures and, and we set up our tent. We set up camp. He, the they were fire. doing exactly what you're supposed to do out in nature. And then everything went wrong. He just started falling head over hills and I just chased after him. 910, the call out text came. Ten year old boy, possible head injuries, need crag rats to respond. Most of us go into the outdoors with a general sense that if we get in trouble, there'll be someone to come help. But what really happens when things go wrong in the wilderness? You don't know. You don't know how far help is away. I'm Sarah Fox, and in this story, we get a rare glimpse behind the scenes with the Crag Rats, the oldest mountain search and rescue team in the country. Mount Hood and the Columbia Gorge 
are full of rivers and trails and waterfalls. They're also just an hour from Portland, which means there's no shortage of outdoor attractions and no shortage of people wanting to explore them. And in 2013, 10-year-old Cole Hancock and his dad, Kim, were two of those people. Oh, he, he just wanted to see snow, not see it. He wanted to, to hike up, up to it. And you, you can always, you know, I mean, you can go up to Timberline Lodge in the middle of summer and there's snow because it's a glacier. So Cole and Kim started planning their camping trip. The destination was the White River Canyon, a popular drainage between Timberline and Mount Hood Meadows. It's a spot that gets you out into beautiful country without needing to stray too far from civilization. You can't see the parking lot, but it's not so far out there that you feel like, you know, I'll never get back because it's just up. So all you have to do is go back down. And every time I've been up there, you have cell phone service. In fact, it's better than where we live. But Kim knew that cell coverage and proximity were no substitute for preparation. So in the weeks leading up to the trip, Cole and his dad made sure to get ready. You know, we'd go over things that what would happen if it got really windy or what would happen if, you know, um, we couldn't get off the mountain for a day. He would go out in the backyard and I took the, the bull off of the Weber barbecue. And I'm like, so you gotta figure out how to start these fires and you've gotta be able to do it whether it's windy or whether it's raining. And so he would- And then finally the day arrived and they headed up to Mount Hood. We got there and he couldn't have been more excited to put that backpack on and hike in. You know, as we're going in, this little boy was, I mean, I, I had to stop. I'm talking to him like, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll, take, we'll get up here and we'll, we'll take a rest for you. Oh, Dad, I'll be fine. I don't know that there could have been a happier boy as we, as we went up the hill. And that's what's so tough about accidents. Most of the time, we never see them coming. Richard Hallman says he's not an adrenaline junkie. But I can see why people might be skeptical. See, I got my skateboard, surfboard, <laughs> snowboard, kiteboards, stand-up paddleboard. We're in Richard's basement. It looks like it's part man cave, part REI. He has well-organized gear for just about any outdoor sport you can imagine. And when he's not on one of his own adventures, he's probably doing his job working as an outdoor adventure sports photographer. Despite all this, Richard's love of the outdoors started off normal enough. Uh, I, you know, I was a Boy Scout, and my grandparents taught me how to sail as a kid. My mom and dad were both avid skiers, and so growing up, we never went anywhere warm. We always went skiing. We went, went... It was that time on skis where things started to click. And in the wintertime, we had, we had a lot of snow, and... Yeah, as soon as I'd get off the bus, I would get my ski gear together and I'd get a shovel and I'd go up the street and build jumps and, you know, I'd be out till after dark. You know, I, I had this goal, I wanted to be a ski patroller and, and it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience and I think that was a catalyst for a lot of uh, growth for me and, and also opened my eyes to a, a bigger outdoor adventure world. It also brought him face to face with one of the realities of playing outside. Uh, when I became a ski patroller, one of the things that scared me the most was having to do medical work. I used to drive by ambulance scenes and I'd be like, oh, thank God there's somebody that can get out there and do that because I don't think I could do it. But to be a ski patroller, Richard had to get CPR and winter emergency training. And then one thing led to the next, and he got his EMT certification. And then before he knew it, 
he was moving to the gorge and becoming an ER trauma nurse. Being there for somebody in a critical time of need changed my life. It just, I, I was like, I, I want to do this. Which brings us back to why we're here in Richard's basement. Richard is one of the Crag Rats. They're the people who step in when something goes wrong in the outdoors. When the adventure that you or I or Kim and his son Cole are on ends up backfiring. And you might think a team like the Crag Rats is all medical personnel, like Richard. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Hello, radio. One, two, three, four. Am I getting out? That's Tom Rousseau. He's soft-spoken and unflappable. And while other kids were earning their merit badges, Tom was tuning in. You know, my dad got me into the Cub Scouts, and I, I didn't like that. Uh, I couldn't, didn't learn a Morse code, so I couldn't get up to whatever's next, Tenderfoot or something, or I don't know, whatever the scales were. And so I flunked out of the Boy Scouts. But I got involved in radios, and I really liked radios and electronics. So that's all I did when I was in high school. Even with these different backgrounds, Richard and Tom both found their way to the Craig Rats, along with many others. We have orchardists, we have engineers, we have lawyers, we have doctors, we have contractors, we have carpenters, we have electricians, EMTs. We all bring different skills. As for Tom, he's a radio guy. And he eventually made a career out of it as an engineer at Tektronics. And it's a skill that comes in pretty handy with the Craig Rats. Often, there's no cell phone reception, and radios are the lifeline between a victim and the rest of the rescue team. So I can talk directly to an airplane, and then I have some amateur radios, which are good because uh, sometimes... It's clear the Crag Rats take their responsibility seriously. So what's with the name? Most of them have official-sounding names, names like Deschutes Mountain Search and Rescue or Portland Mountain Rescue. Uh, we're one of the few that have an oddball name like Crag Rats. And it's a name that goes all the way back to 1926. Well, I think everybody that tells the story has a slightly different twist on it. But I think the, uh, in the big picture, it's all about the same. Originally, before it was a formal organization, it was just a bunch of loose guys that climbed around. They often just went up on weekends and climbed around on Mount Hood and, and the like. And, and one time there was a, a lost boy, and he'd been lost for a couple of days. And so I don't know who called it out, probably a sheriff or something for help to look for them. And somebody suggests, well, there's a bunch of these climbers over in Hood River area that know that part of the mountain pretty well. Maybe they can help. So they did, and they did find the little boy. And so in being interviewed by the, I suppose, the Oregonian or the newspaper, they, they you know, well, what do you call you guys? What do you guys call yourselves? And, you know, I guess there was a pause because there was no name. And somebody just an impromptu said, well, we call ourselves the Crag Rats because one of the guy's wives had called you, you guys are just a bunch of rats that go climbing around on the mountain on the weekends in the crags. The name stuck. In 2017, the Crag Rats celebrated their 90th birthday. Not too bad for a bunch of rats. If you look at a map showing search and rescue missions throughout Oregon, you'll notice three clusters. One is in Bend, and the other two are the Columbia River Gorge and Mount Hood. 
territory that falls heavily on the crag rats. Right now, rescue crews are working to bring down six hikers and bring them to safety in the gorge. A dangerous rescue operation is underway on Mount Hood tonight. After Scrambling to save lives in the gorge today, several rescues... It's been a dangerous week for hikers in the Columbia River Gorge. Another hiker had... To we begin now with breaking news on Mount Hood, where the Hood River Sheriff's Office has been searching... When the Sheriff's Department gets a 911 call for an accident in the mountains, they turn to the crag rats. These rescues in mountainous terrain, where you need outdoor skills, special gear and expertise, everything from a fall on Mount Hood to a day hiker lost after dark, this isn't stuff that your local cops are set up to do. Most of our call-outs are at night. Um, and it's always on the weekends, because that's when the, the majority of people are out and about and getting into trouble or... You know, sometimes I might be puttering around the yard, but you know, often it's, I've gone for a long bicycle ride or gone for a long hike myself. But we're all doing something, and usually we're coming home, we're ready to sit out on the deck with that nice ice cold beer and just watch the sunset, and we get this call out. This brings us to the paradox of outdoor adventure. No matter how far away and independent we might feel, there's no way around the fact that the decisions we make will inevitably affect others. Take, for example, just one of the missions in a place that usually has multiple rescues each year. A popular falls in the gorge proved to be deadly over the weekend. Apparently victims jumped off into Punch Bowl. One fatality, one hypothermic patient who was swimming to look for the deceased and one struck on ledge. Now it happened yesterday at Punch Bowl Falls in the Columbia Gorge, just past of Cascade Locks. Witnesses say the victim had jumped in after several of his friends did. The mission at Punch Bowl spanned nearly a day and a half. Six Craig Rats were part of an even larger team of nearly two dozen rescuers. Multnomah County Sheriff team uh, actually went in and got the, got the body. They had to dive because the body was circulating around in an eddy under the waterfall. Once the victim was retrieved, the Craig Rats packaged the body and brought it down the trail. Missions like this one that are so difficult and grim, make it even more amazing to learn the one thing that all Craig Rats have in common. Do you think people that you rescue as part of the Craig Rats know that you guys are volunteers? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think some people think that we're hired hands. I think some people are really surprised that, you know, wow, you, you don't get paid any money, you're just out here doing this. And while there's certainly rescues for people who deliberately take risks, most call-outs are for the kind of thing that could happen to any of us, no matter how prepared we are. Cole was pretty excited. I mean, he's watching the sun, and the, you know, and so he's like, "Well, if we climb, then we'll see the sunset. It'll go longer." So we kind of stair step in a little bit, and. And he wants to go up a little higher, and I'm like, you know, I think we're high enough. And so we sat there for a little bit, and we watched the sun, you know, kind of drift off, but it's not dark. I'm like, hey, so we should just probably get going and head back. And as we got down a little bit farther, um, I'm like, Cole, I mean, because Cole's dragging at this point. I mean, he's just sliding butt down first, just making a dusty mess. And I said, hey, Cole, why don't you just stand up, put one foot in front of the other, and 
and within one, maybe two steps, he got going so fast, he just started falling head over heels. And I just chased after him. We were having a radio meeting, I remember this. Tom's reading from his journal. On the night of the accident, he just happened to be at the Hood River Fire Station. So this came out over the speaker in the room. So there was an accident on Mont Hood. So that was at 9 o'clock. Then at 9.10, and the call-out text came. And it says, need Crag Rats to respond to 10-year-old boy, possible head injuries, White River. I picked him up and um, just talking to him you know, trying to get him to awake, and he wouldn't. I wanted to get him back to camp so bad, <laughs> like there was going to be some kind of an ambulance there for me. All the movies where, you know, a guy picks someone else up, whether they're 200 pounds or whatever, and they lift him and they carry him for four miles. I remember having him in my arms, this little 80-pound boy and running for probably a quarter mile and just telling my arms, you're, you know, there's no way you're giving up. I don't care what it takes. You know, you're not giving up. And feeling the failure in my arms, feeling the failure in my legs and my back. I'm not a father, but I, I, I can't imagine that, you know, the, the stress uh, this father was having to go through you know, he's out there camping with his 10-year-old son, you know, and, and just, it, it should be a nice, beautiful evening, and it just turns into this nightmare. He's in and out of consciousness, um, but he's breathing. I don't, uh, I don't see any other broken bones. I've okay. his head wrapped up. I know Cole, look at me. Look at me. Can you look at me? I know Cole. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't know how much battery power I had left. You know, there was a big part of me that figured that uh, that help would come just by, you know, knowing where my phone was at um, or knowing where the parking lot was at or anything. Probably made the hardest call in my life <laughs> to call his mom. But uh, you don't know, you don't know how far help is away. When they told me that they were just leaving, I really didn't think there was a chance. can prepare all you know completely and you can have all the necessary items and then take a wrong fall step through a hole in the ice or something and you injure yourself and it's no reflection on how clumsy you are or not it's just it, it just happens and 
And then it's a matter of how you manage that from there. While Kim took care of Cole up on the mountain, the clock started ticking for Richard and Tom. I was out the door within five minutes. I had my kit all ready to do some backcountry anyway and, I had, and got the call and I was ready to go. That's kind of unusual. Usually I'm somewhere else and I have to go home, get my stuff, and then, uh, and then respond. So I was on the road by 10 o'clock heading up to the White River. At 10.45 I arrived at White River. Chris Gerton was the deputy. Richard Hallman was already there. I was just focused on, as a nurse, knowing what the call, you know, a young child with a potential head injury that, you know, time was critical. At 11 p.m., Richard and I left the trailhead for the victim. Cole was vomiting blood at that point, so I've got him on his side. Um, you know, as he's vomiting, I, I'm able to make sure his mouth is clear. You know, so I think he's probably got internal bleeding that I can't see. I have a flashlight, but I don't want to mess with him too much. There's nothing I'd be able to do anyway. The call had gone out. A team had assembled. They'd reached the trailhead. But even with everyone responding as quickly as possible, Kim had still been waiting with Cole for nearly three hours. It just takes time, you know, and it's, it's uh, unfortunate because, you know, if somebody's injured, it just takes time for all of this. And that seems to be the linchpin in outdoor adventure. The very reasons that we like to get out. The solitude, the wild beauty, the distance from civilization are the very reasons that make rescue missions so difficult. The father did something that was incredibly right. The report came in that the father had started a fire, and so it was like a moth to the flame. I was able to see the, the fire from a distance. That made the, the initial response very fast, because I knew exactly from really far away where they were. We were seeing the flashlights. I remember seeing the flashlights coming. It's like little angels, really, floating, you know, as they came. And I got on scene, and I did an initial assessment on the, on the kid and able to see his head wound, which, you know, was pretty significant. I provided communications back to the sheriff. Here's what we are. Here are the vital signs. Here's, here are some of the issues. Knowing that we've already taken this much time, it's already taken this much time to get to him, you know, we just really want to get get him out as quickly as possible. According to Tom's journal, EMTs arrived on the scene around 1245, and more Craig rats were on the way. And while a lot of rescues are done in areas that are only accessible by foot, which means hiking in and hiking out, Tom and Richard hoped in this case, there might be a faster way. Below the ridge, there's a flat zone, and it was clear enough we thought a helicopter could land in there. And so they said that he was going to call the hospital and get him, get him life lighted out of there. And I'm like, oh, okay. The helicopter came in. It, it was like a, a sandstorm. It was kicking up so much dust, nobody could see anything. You know, we had our eyes closed, sand is whipping around everything. He couldn't even see the ground, so he wasn't, didn't know when he was touching down. The helicopter ended up couldn't land. The closest the helicopter was going to be able to land was back in the White River parking lot, nearly two miles away. My heart kind of sank a little bit because I knew that we had to, 
we had to load him up into a litter and we had to carry him. 115 began lowering the victim in the stokes or the litter, attached a wheel at the bottom of the marine. Yeah, it was steep, so we had to hand carry it down. And, you know, if one person falls, the whole thing might tumble. So, you know, there's great communication between everybody. And they moved that boy out. I was at a running pace with uh, six of them, you know, just leading the way all the way out. And uh, um, it was, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, amazing pace. Uh, for hiking all that way in, and then, I mean, it's, it's downhill, but you're still carrying, you're still carrying, you know, 80, 90 pounds. Um, and uh, they didn't stop, not one time. Uh, I, I remember it was just, you know, it's getting really tired. But you, again, uh, the moment I think that, I think, okay, if this was me, I would want somebody to be totally focused and doing, you know, their best to save my life. They arrived in the parking lot around 2.30 a.m. Cole was handed off to the life flight crew and loaded onto the helicopter. It had been more than five hours since he fell. It was such a, such a relief. So I felt like I'd done everything, but there was no part of me that thought he would make it. In Tom's journal, it says he crawled into bed at 4 a.m., a full seven hours after he got the call-out text. For the Craig Rats, it's back to their own lives, their day jobs, their families. And it's the same for Mountain Search and Rescue volunteers all across the country. Which makes you wonder. If there weren't people like you and Tom and others, um, who would go rescue people? There will always be people like us. If the Craig Rats didn't exist, I—I I mean, I, no offense, but I—that's a non-question. I don't think that that's. I think there'll always be, you know, there'll always be those people out there. I think most of us feel well. That could be us because a lot of these people are doing just the same kinds of things that I did, and they just happen to get slightly on the wrong side of that hairy edge, where I was lucky, uh, they weren't quite so lucky. The Craig Rats very rarely learn the outcome of the people they rescue. Medical privacy rules means that information doesn't get shared. We hand off and then go home. You know, the job is done. You wonder what happens next. You know, on a lot of missions, most of our missions, we don't get closure. But in the case of Cole, that's not how the story ends. Doctors say Cole has three fractures in his skull, but tonight we have learned he has improved to fair condition. Right here, I'm cold, I'm alive, I can't believe, and I'm alive. He's doing phenomenal, and the speech therapists think he's doing great. Getting outdoors is the great equalizer. Accidents can happen to any of us, regardless our skill or experience. But that's the deal we make. We do our part to prepare, and then we accept some of that inherent risk because we believe the hike or the waterfall or the climb, whatever it is, is worth it. And that's why groups like the Craig Rats exist, because they believe it too. 
They believe it enough to volunteer their time and gear and even accept some risk on our behalf so that we can all have those outdoor adventures. And when you think about it, that's a pretty good deal. Special thanks to Travel Oregon, who helped to fund and launch this season's Here in the Gorge podcast. And to our sponsors, Portland Spirit Cruises and Events, Mount Adams Chamber of Commerce, Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, Bridgeside and Riverside Restaurants, Mary Hill Museum of Art, and Wet Planet Whitewater. Thanks to Tom Rousseau and Richard Hallman, and to the many other team members who are part of the mission to White River, including Craig Ratz, Dale Crockett, Brian Hukari, and Mark Flaming. Thanks also to the Parkdale EMT, the Life Flight crew, and the Hood River County Sheriff's Office. Craig Rat Christopher Van Tilburg gave the sense of place lecture that prompted this episode, and he also provided valuable facts and fact-checking. And a very special thanks to Kim and Cole and the entire Hancock family who so graciously shared their story. Technical and editorial support, along with a lot of hard work, came from Kelsey Alzheimer, Amanda Lawrence, and Lloyd Decay. This episode includes music from Vortex, Blue Dot Sessions, Brian Eno, and Ketza. That was Sarah Fox. She hosts and produces the podcast Here in the Gorge, which is where this story first aired. We've got a link to her show on our website, outtherepodcast.com. A couple of quick notes before you go. First off, we are looking to take on someone who can oversee ad sales for the podcast. We're still ironing out the details, but stay tuned if you're interested. We'll have all sorts of information on how to apply very soon. And FYI, there is money on the table for this. Secondly, we've started an Out There Facebook group, and we would love for you to join. This is a place for all of you to connect with us and with each other. It's a community where you can ask questions, engage in discussions, and swap stories and advice. As many of you know, we experimented with making an advice segment earlier this year, and that experience is what prompted us to make this Facebook group. The overall feedback we got from listeners led us to conclude that the Dear Nature segment was not exactly the right thing to continue with. But a lot of you expressed a strong desire for advice and the ability to share stories and discuss questions big and small. So we're creating a forum where we at Out There, plus the producers who bring you their stories each episode, can join you in conversation. We hope this sounds fun to you. If it does, just head over to Facebook and request to join the Out There podcast group. Everyone is welcome, and we hope this will be a place where you feel supported, encouraged, and inspired. The last thing I wanted to tell you is that we have selected our first cohort of Out There ambassadors. You can read all about them on our website, outtherepodcast.com, under the About section, and we hope you'll follow them on social media as well. The first theme our ambassadors are tackling is how to thrive 
or at least survive, during the holidays. You can get in on the fun by posting about how you use the outdoors to survive and thrive. Just use the hashtag SurviveThriveHolidays. And now it's time for Community Classifieds. Our classified section is a way for all of you to let each other know about events, books, products, etc. that you think the out there community would enjoy. Our first classified ad today comes from Mountain Literary. When you're home planning your next adventure or sitting in front of the fireplace and you're wishing you had something new and unique to read, consider Mountain Literary, where you can find the Mountaintop series of novels by William Graney and a selection of used adventure books. Featured novels include The Ways of Autumn, which won a gold medal in the 2018 Human Relations Indie Book Awards, and the 2017 silver medal winner called Mountain Time. Book descriptions and links to purchase can be found at mountaintopusa.com. That's mountaintopusa.com. Our next classified ad comes from Metolius Basin Institute, dedicated to personal transformation through nature connection. Connect to nature, discover your purpose, live a meaningful life. Sign up for nature-connected coaching sessions online or a transformational trek to Nepal. Live the life you were meant to live. If you mention Out There podcast in your message, you can receive an hour-long free initial coaching session. Head to metoliusbasininstitute.com to begin your transformation today. That's M-E-T-O-L-I-U-S basininstitute.com. If you'd like to take out a classified ad of your own, just head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, and click Contact. There's a super easy form to fill out, and as soon as we hear from you, we'll be in touch about all the details. That's it for this episode. Our marketing and business development director is Alex Eggerking. Our theme music was written by Jared Arnold, and Laura Johnston heads up our ambassador program. We'll see you in two weeks, and in the meantime, have a beautiful day. Be bold, go outside, and find your dreams.